Welcome to the podcast of Harvest Baptist Church in Harvest, Alabama. We invite you into our sanctuary as we dive into God's Word with our pastor, Dr. Al Peringer. Well, this morning I want you to turn to 1 Peter chapter 4. I'll be reading verses 12 through 19 here in just a, a little bit. When I was a kid, there was this TV show called Ripley's Believe It or Not, and, you know, they would just put on the show all these strange and bizarre oddities, and, and you probably know that Ripley's is this huge franchise. It's a long-standing franchise. It's been around for a long time. They have TV shows. They have books. They have aquariums. They have museums. They have all sorts of stuff still going strong, showing the world all these strange things from a two-headed parrot to a horse that paints and does very well at it, I guess, to, to a fully knitted Ferrari, a full-size knitted Ferrari. Why anyone would want to knit a Ferrari? I have no idea. That's why it's strange. There's all sorts of strange things in this world. And do you know what else is strange in this world? We are. Now, before you get insulted, what am I talking about? I'm talking about the American church. We are strange. We are strange in the fact that we have had relative peace and prosperity for almost two and a half centuries. We haven't suffered greatly for the faith, nor have we really faced any sort of significant persecution. I mean, yes, I mean, the, in, in some way the church is always opposed by the world, but we have not suffered like our brothers and sisters in Christ in centuries past, nor many of those who are suffering now in closed countries. We are strange. And the reason I, I say that is because the passage that we're looking at today Peter says that suffering for the faith, being persecuted for standing up for Jesus Christ, is not a strange thing. In fact, it is to be expected. If we have believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, it puts us at odds with the belief of the world system and those, the powers that be that are behind the world system because we no longer follow the world system. We no longer hold its beliefs. We no longer are under the dominion of the spiritual powers behind the world system. We are now in enemy territory and the enemy is mad that we no longer belong to him but we belong to Christ and the enemy doesn't want us messing up anything that he's trying to do on this in this world. And so the enemy does what he can to make us ineffective. He does what he can to try and hold on to his short-lived power. He knows his time is short. And so he causes us to suffer persecution. Now, while we American Christians think that persecution and suffering under persecution is foreign, it's strange. Peter says, well, no, it's not. It's not strange. It should be expected. If we're going to be, if we're not persecuted for the faith, we're the strange ones. And it also might be an indication that we're not doing this Christianity thing in the right way. Because Paul says, I mean, if you live holy for God, you will be persecuted. Not might be, could be, but you will be. That is a gospel fact. And so what we find in this passage is that Peter exhorts Christian pilgrims to expect suffering and persecution to be normal. 
but to still stand strong for Christ. And do not let persecution turn you from the faith. And so I want to read verses 12 through 19 of 1 Peter chapter 4, if you'll stand in reverence to the reading of God's holy word as I read these verses. And Peter writes to us, dear friends, do not be astonished that a trial by fire is occurring among you as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice in the degree that you have shared in the suffering of Christ so that when his glory is revealed, you may also rejoice and be glad. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory, who is the spirit of God, rests on you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or criminal or as a troublemaker. But if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but glorify God that you bear such a name. For it is time for judgment to begin, starting with the house of God. And if it starts with us, what will be the fate of those who are disobedient to the gospel of God? And if the righteous are barely saved, what will become of the ungodly and sinners? So then let those who suffer according to the will of God entrust their souls to a faithful creator as they do good. Let's pray. Our God in heaven, I just pray that you would set it in our hearts to stand strong for you and the, the results of that, that would come from this world, but Lord, knowing that following you is of eternal value no matter what. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you so much. You may be seated. So the, in the book uh, of 1 Peter, Peter reminds the churches that we do not belong to this world anymore. We have a new life. We have a new master. Everything about us is new. We are made new. And our newness is at odds with the world. And so we are merely pilgrims that are passing through until we get to our final destination. But while we're passing through, we serve the Lord gladly. But while we're serving the Lord gladly, we meet with opposition by those who belong to the world, by those who belong to the enemy. But we must remember, we might suffer for a time on this earth, but that suffering is temporary. We have a new life. We have a new destination. We have a new Fate is a word that some use. We have a new eternal life. So there's this expectation of suffering and persecution from those that do not have that life, who are stuck in the way of the world. And so verse 12 tells us, don't be astonished when the suffering of persecution comes upon you like it is some strange thing. Don't look at persecution like it is the two-headed parrot. It's not. It's the norm. And so expect it. And so we, we ask the question, how can we remain steadfast in following Christ with this expectation of suffering hanging over our heads? Well, Peter gives us some lessons to consider to help form our beliefs about persecution, to form our beliefs about the expected suffering so that we are, are able to know what's to come and we're able to stand strong for our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so the first lesson that Peter touches upon is he looks at our attitude towards suffering. Our attitude towards suffering, what should our attitude towards suffering be? Well, Peter says there in verse 13 to rejoice that we suffer just like our Lord suffered. You know, not that suffering persecution is, is joyful in and of itself, 
but we rejoice because we are being treated just like our Savior was treated. You know, we say we want to be just like our Savior. We say we want to be Christ-like. And, you know, often when we say that, we're saying, well, you know, I want to be holy like him. I want to be loving like him. I want to have some sort of characteristic of Christ in my life, the fruits of the Spirit in my life. But part of being Christ-like is also to suffer just as he suffered. That's part of it. And, and we face it with joy because I'm suffering just like my Savior suffered. It connects us with our Christ. It connects us with our Lord. That's when we are really like him. This is a consistent theme that's found throughout Scripture. James says right, right at the beginning of his epistle in James 1-2, he says, My brothers and sisters, consider it nothing but joy when you fall into all sorts of trials. We think of the original apostles after Christ's resurrection and ascension and how they were persecuted by the Sanhedrin. And it records for us in Acts chapter 5 that after they were released by the Sanhedrin, after being grilled and all of that, it says in Acts 5.41, they left the council rejoicing because they had been considered worthy to suffer dishonor for the sake of the name. They, they rejoiced because they were considered worthy to suffer. Boy, that's not a sentence you've probably said any day like ever. And yet, they rejoiced that they were considered worthy to suffer. Paul gives us some insight when he writes in Romans 5.3, not only this, but we also rejoice in sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance. We rejoice that it makes us more like Christ. And I'll talk a little bit more about that in just a little bit. We rejoice because our suffering for the faith identifies us with our Savior. It builds up our faith. It makes us more like the one whom we praise and honor and to whom we are knit. We actually are never more like our Savior than when we suffer for the truth, than when we suffer for the gospel, when we suffer for his namesake. Paul said in Philippians 1.29, for it has been granted to you not only to believe in Christ, but also to suffer for him. And so, you know, we, we, we find it a time to rejoice when we suffer for his sake because we want to know him more. We want to be like him more. That's why Paul could say in Philippians 3.10, my aim is to know him. How? To experience the power of his resurrection. We like that so far. To share in his sufferings. We don't know about that. He even goes further. To be like him in his death. Yeah, we're not too keen on that last part of that verse. But it is a time of rejoicing. Because the suffering means we are like our Savior, and it's making us like our Savior. Now, unfortunately, our world has perverted the Christian message into saying that if you really know Christ, if you're really a Christian, if you have enough faith, you'll have health and prosperity and all of that. But the Bible says nothing of the kind. The Bible says that if you really know Christ, it will come with hardship. It will come with suffering. It will come with persecution. But the point is that we get to know him more. The point is that we get to be more like him. That's the reason to rejoice. That is the attitude we have toward our suffering of persecution. But we also rejoice in our sufferings because of the second lesson that Peter talks about. And so secondly today, I want you to see, he talks about our blessings in suffering. 
There are blessings in suffering. You probably can't think of a one, but Peter names them for us. Because Peter's perspective, Peter is looking at the perspective of eternity. He is looking at the perspective of heaven. Paul tells us, don't just look on earthly things, but let your thinking be above. Think from a heavenly perspective. Don't just set your minds on things below. Look from a heavenly perspective. And the heavenly perspective is, yes, you know, for now. You're on this earth and you suffer persecution, but consider the spiritual blessings that you receive from it, both now while you're in this world, but more so later when you're not in this world, in the future there. And so we remember what Paul said in Romans 8.18 when he said, I consider that our present sufferings cannot even be compared to the coming glory that will be revealed to us. And so we have that same mindset, and and Peter tells us in verse 13, rejoice in the degree that you have shared in the sufferings of Christ so that when his glory is revealed, you may also rejoice and be glad. If we share in Christ's sufferings, it's a reminder to us that we're also going to share in his glory. When the glory of Christ is revealed, either at our death or when Christ returns, guess what? We get to share in that. We share his glory with him, and we share the victory that it stands for. We share in his victory. Christ is victorious over sin and death. We sang that, praise him, who is victorious over sin and death. We get to share in that. We share in the victory. We share in the glory. And so Paul said in Romans 8, 17, if we're children, then we're heirs, namely heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, so we may also be glorified with him. If you suffer with him, you share in his glory. But there's another blessing that Peter mentions in the passage that we looked at today. When you are persecuted, when you suffer, it is demonstrable proof that you have the Holy Spirit. And the Bible tells us when you have the Holy Spirit, guess what? You belong to God. That's how you know you belong to God, when you have the Holy Spirit. You've trusted in Christ. You have the Holy Spirit dwelling within you. So look at verse 14 again. He says, if you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the Spirit of glory, who is the Spirit of God, rests on you. And so if you're being truly persecuted for the faith, noted it says, if you are insulted for the name of Christ, if you're persecuted for the faith, not because of anything you've done, but for the faith, it's proof that you belong to God and the Holy Spirit dwells in you. This is another means of assurance that you, you are who you claim to be. It's a means of assurance of your identity, of your identity in Christ. You know, over the years for various legal and financial transactions, you know, you have to show identity. So, you know, I've had to show my, my birth certificate many a times to prove that I am who I say that I am to prove that I am from where I say that I am from. It is a form of identity. I have other forms of identity to prove that I am who I say I am, that I'm not a fraud. But it is one, my birth certificate is one. You know, there's many proofs of your identity in Christ, but your being able to stand up to the suffering of persecution is a proof that you have the Holy Spirit, which is a proof that you belong to Christ. Or as Paul said in in the verse that I read earlier, it shows that you're his children. 
is it shows that you are an heir of the eternal inheritance that God has for his people. And so suffering persecution reminds us of the blessings that are ours, the glory that we share, the victory that we share, the identity that we have, the fact that the Holy Spirit is within us and leading us and guiding us. But Peter has another very important point to make. And so thirdly today, he talks about our motivation for suffering, not how we're motivated, but what is the motivation behind the suffering of persecution that we have? Because we have to consider why it is that we are suffering persecution. Peter gives us a warning in verse 15. He says, let none of you suffer as a murderer or thief or criminal or as a troublemaker. Now, he, he's given a warning like this throughout his epistle. Several times, in fact, in his epistle, he is telling us, be careful what the motivation is behind the suffering. Are you being persecuted for the faith? Or are you being persecuted because of something that you've done that is unbiblical? Are you being persecuted because of your love for Jesus? Or are you suffering because you're rude, crude, and annoying? I guess that's one way to put it. it. Is the suffering that you're getting your own fault because of something you did that is unbiblical? He warns the church in verse 15, don't suffer because of your sin. Don't suffer because of your poor choices. That is not the same thing as persecution. And so he lists murder, stealing, criminal activity, and being a troublemaker, or some of the translations will say being a busybody. Are you suffering because people are sick and tired of you sticking your nose in their business? Now, that sounds like a really weird, extreme range of things. You go from murder to being a busybody. You don't normally equate those two together. I mean, the one who's a busybody, you might want to murder, but you know, at this weird, that, that connection, but there's a reason why he's using these extremes. He's telling you, are you, he's just saying, are you suffering because of something unbiblical? Are you suffering because of your bad attitude? Are you suffering because of your poor life choices? Guess what? That's not persecution. That's your own fault. Don't try and say, oh, I'm being persecuted for Christ because all these people are doing all these things to me when Christ had nothing to do with it. It's happening to you because of your choices. I mean, how many times have we seen Christians try and blame what they say is persecution on other things when it's really just the consequence of their sin? You know, maybe one day you're running late for church, but you're, you, you wanna get here, and God bless you, I want you, you here, but you're running late. And so you're cruising 90 to nothing down Waltrian, all right? And you get pulled over by a cop. And you get a ticket. And then you start complaining, oh, I'm suffering because I was trying to get to church. The devil didn't want me to get to church. I'm suffering uh, this persecution. They're persecuting me because I'm a Christian and I'm trying to get to church. No, you're suffering because you got a lead foot. <laughs> That's not the same thing. Jesus had nothing to do with it. Jesus did not take the wheel at the time, right? 
Not all suffering is because of supposed persecution for Christ. Remember how verse 14 started. It's if you are insulted for the name of Christ. That's persecution. And then look again at verse 16. If you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but glorify God that you bear such a name. If you suffer as a Christian, now here's something very interesting. We are so used to the word Christian. It's a normal moniker that we take for ourselves. Did you know that the word for Christian is only found three times in Scripture? And it's based on people calling them that in a very derogatory way. It was, at Peter's time, Christian was a very derogatory term that the enemies of Christ had put on them. And so, you know, when he says, if you're being, you know, suffering because you're a Christian, if you're being persecuted because you're a Christian, it means, you know, people are hostile toward you and they lie about you. They say all manner of evil things about you, as Christ told us in the Sermon on the Mount. It's because of who you are in Christ. Christian was a very derogatory term. I mean, I can't think of a, you know, necessarily one word that would encapsulate that today, but you know what people call us when we actually stand for Christ and stand for the Bible. They'll say things like, you're nothing but an intolerant, Bible-thumping, fundy, hateful, holy roller bigot, or something like that. that. That would be what, you know, Christian in Peter's day would be. If you suffer for the name of Christ, if you suffer because you stand on the word of God, Peter says, don't be ashamed. Don't be ashamed. Instead, glorify God that he has given you the privilege to bear the name of Christ. If you suffer as a Christian. Now, to be honest, you know, things might be coming full circle. So we might say that now the word Christian is used in a very derogatory manner in our day and age. But you know what? Okay, if they insult us because of the name of Christ, if they insult us because we are a Christian, then, well, so be it. Peter says, don't be ashamed. Don't be ashamed of the name of Christ. Don't be ashamed of the name Christian. Don't be uh, ashamed of that. Actually, glorify God that you actually bear that name. So if someone says to me, you're such a Christian. My response is, well, thank you. That means that, that I'm in Christ. That means that I am living for Christ. It means I'm exuding Christ in my life. So yes, thank you very much. But so what is the motivation behind the persecution that's coming your way? Is it because of you and your own, well, excuse my French, is it because of your own stupidity or is it because of Christ? Is it because that you live for him, that he is your everything, and you are going to to just stand strong on him and his word? What is the motivation behind that? There's another lesson that Peter gives, and this one also might be hard to swallow, but the fourth lesson is that he talks about our refinement in suffering. Our refinement in suffering. God chooses to use the suffering and persecution in our lives for various reasons. He he chooses to use it. In fact, verse 19, consider what Paul says there in verse 19. He, He talks about the fact that people may suffer according to the will of God. 
This is a hard pill to swallow. God might will your suffering of persecution. You know, this is beyond this particular sermon, but God might will other suffering for a time. Why? Why would he do that? He allows it so that you are refined. You know, just like precious metals are refined so that all the impurities are taken out of the precious metals, God uses suffering and persecution to refine us and get all the impurities out of us. Sometimes, you know, it's a means of discipline because there's things in our lives that we refuse to get rid of and so sometimes God just has to force it out of you. If you're not gonna give it up willingly, fine, I'm gonna get it, I'm gonna get it out of you one way or another. Because consider what he says at the beginning of verse 17. For it is time for judgment to begin starting with the house of God. It starts with us. Did you know that God would judge his own people? Did you know that, that God's people can be under judgment? I mean, consider the Old Testament. He did it to the nation of Israel. He used the Babylonians. He used the Assyrians. He used all these other people to judge his people. And do we think that somehow we're beyond God's judgment? Oh, I'm in Christ, I'm saved. God's gonna give me nothing but blessings and health and wealth and prosperity and all that, no. Now the judgment of God for his people is completely different from the judgment of God for those who are not his people. Because the judgment of God for us, his children, is for the purpose of discipline and refinement. The relationship is not changed. He will never kick us to the side. He holds on to us. But the judgment of God against those who are not his people is his holy, righteous wrath and justice against sin. That's, you know, so think about what Peter says in verse 17. You know, if judgment is gonna begin with the house of God, if God's gonna deal with his own people that way, what will be the fate of those who are disobedient to the gospel of God? I mean, if God's gonna judge his own people, what's gonna happen to those who aren't? If God deals with sin in his children through the judgment of discipline, he sure isn't gonna hold back judgment against those who refuse to believe in Jesus Christ. And so in verse 18, he quotes uh, Proverbs eleven thirty-one to make his point. If God won't spare his children from these temporal disciplinary just judgments, what's gonna happen to those who aren't forgiven in Christ when the final judgment comes? What's gonna to happen to those who have refused to listen and obey the gospel call when Jesus comes in final judgment? But God, you know, what it shows us is God hates sin and God hates sin even in his own people. And he will use the suffering of persecution to get some of that stuff out of us. As one author described this work of God, he said, when things are going well for believers, he tends the believer tends to feel more and more secure in himself and tends to partake of the world more and more. Perhaps he partakes of only little tidbits of the pleasure and possessions of the world, but nevertheless he is still partaking of, the some, of some worldliness. The result is that the believer does not concentrate and focus upon Christ like he should. When things are going well, he does not pray and worship nor fellowship and commune with God like he should. He becomes somewhat contaminated and polluted with a sense of self-sufficiency and worldliness. When this happens, God has to do something to awaken the believer. One thing that he often 
does is use persecution to arouse the believer. God can use persecution as a means of judgment, as a means to stir the believer so as to draw them closer to God. God uses the suffering of persecution as a cleansing work in our lives. And, you know, we mentioned earlier, that actually is a source of joy. And, you know, because sometimes people might think that if God allows us to suffer through persecution, that means he has forgotten us, that means he has no interest in us. When in actuality, the, the contrary is true. It shows that he has great interest in us because he so loves us, he does not want sin to just taint us and ruin us. And so he is going to do what he needs to do in order to refine us so that he can present a pure bride to his son on the day of the son's return. And so we have to consider when we do suffer persecution, it is a means of refinement that God is using. And finally, and very quickly, uh, the fifth lesson is our, we wanna look at our refuge in suffering. Because look again at verse 19. He says, so then let those who suffer according to the will of God entrust their souls to a faithful creator as they do good. So on this Father's Day, we're reminded our Heavenly Father desires to be our source of strength during times of hardship. You know, Peter says to entrust our souls to the faithful creator, run to him for refuge, trust him even when things don't seem to make sense. You know, when even those times when God doesn't do when we th- what we think he should do, you know, we think God should react in this one way. Well, he might not. But you know what? We still trust him. We still run to him. We still cling to him. You know, it, it, so often we, we turn to these fleshly and worldly alternatives. Instead of running to God in my time of trial, I will run to this. I will run to that when we should be running to God, yeah, you know, we Christians, we like to talk a big talk, but do we, do we really trust God? When the rubber meets the road, do we really trust God? It makes me think of this story that James Montgomery Boyce told about a man who was climbing up a steep mountain. You know, he was trying to get to the summit, and then he began to slip, and he wasn't able to stop himself, and so he was sliding down a very treacherous incline toward a cliff, that, you know, plummeted thousands of feet to the canyon floor. So he was sure he was going to be killed. But just as he was about to go over the edge, he, he threw his hands out and he grabbed hold of uh, a small branch. And he hung there. But he, you know, he had saved himself momentarily, but he, he knew that he wouldn't be able to hold on very long. He knew that his grip would be loosened. And, you know... He wasn't a very religious man, but he, at that time, you know, when trouble comes, everyone turns religious, right? And so he looked up to heaven and he called out, is there anyone up there who can help me? And he didn't expect an answer, but there, to his great surprise, there, there was the deep voice of God who came back and said, yes, I am here and I can help you. But first, you are going to have to let go of the branch. After a long pause, the man looked up and he called out again, is there anybody else up there who can help me? He didn't want to trust God. 
How, uh, how often are we like that? And so when the suffering and persecution comes, who are we gonna take refuge in? God offers to be the one to whom we entrust our souls. And so, you know, when God's ways don't match our ways, we freak out. We look for an alternative, but only God can be a refuge in the midst of our suffering. We entrust ourselves to him. And it says in verse 19, we entrust ourselves to him and we just continue to do, to do good. We continue to do good in the world. We continue to live for Christ. Even, when, even toward our persecutors, I mean, right? Christ said, pray for your enemies. Okay. We don't like it, but we're, we're there to ser even serve your enemies. Be Christ to your enemies. And so we do good. We do good to our enemies. We do good to our brothers and sisters in Christ. Even when persecution comes, we live for Christ. And we take our refuge in him. We find our peace, our joy, our hope, our everything in him alone. And so I'll close with this thought. Now, I've never watched the TV show Stranger Things. I know many of you have. Um, it's like the most popular show that's out there right now, but it's a show about paranormal, supernatural alternate dimension, scientific experiments gone awry kind of stuff. I mean, there's a reason why it's called Stranger Things. There's a lot of strange things going on there. All the strange things on that show are fictional. And another strange thing that is fictional is the idea that you can follow Christ and not suffer persecution. That's a strange fictional thing. I mean, it's a very strange thing. So if we're gonna live faithful, faithfully for Christ, if we're gonna faithfully follow Christ, if we're gonna conform ourselves to him, if we're going to conform ourselves to his word, we should expect persecution. And so Christian, come to the altar today and pray for yourself, pray for your family, pray for your church in these days ahead. Because the day is coming, we might not be so strange anymore. We might experience what's the norm in church history. So pray for strength that we would live faithfully for him. But there may be some here who've never trusted in Jesus. Jesus died on the cross for you. He rose again for you. I want you to consider Peter's words that if judgment comes to the house of God, what's gonna be the fate of those who refuse to believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ? What's your fate? The gospel of Jesus Christ, repent and believe that he died for you, that he paid the penalty for your sin. Give your life to him today. And, and during the invitation, I'll be up front here. I want you to know Jesus. I don't want, man, what a better Father's Day than to come into a relationship with God the Father through his son, Jesus Christ. And then God the Father truly becomes your father. Now that is a great Father's Day gift. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Harvest Baptist Church. For more information, visit us online at harvest-baptist.org or find us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. You can also find info on our children's ministry on Facebook at Harvest Baptist Children's Ministry or on Instagram at kidsquest underscore HBC. Our student ministries on Facebook at HBC Vertical Student Ministry and on Instagram at VSM underscore HBC. We welcome you to join us on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. We are located at 8999 Waltrana Highway in Harvest, Alabama. Thanks for listening, and God bless.